man who needs no introduction. Gotcha. I hope you still feel that way at the end of the session. We see if anybody shows up next week. That's right. I've already had several people tell me they have done the reading that I requested. And they really got stuck in chapter 4. Well, we're not going to spend a lot of time in chapter 4. Okay, if you'll take your Bibles and open them to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, if you will try to recall what you read, we're going to get started with Nehemiah. Now, Gail asked me, why in the world would you pick Nehemiah? And my answer was, because I like it. And since I'm the speaker, I get to pick what I like. So I hope by the end of the time we get through with this, that you too will like it. Uh, it is an interesting book. And it is a book that, as you read the first three chapters, you can just breeze right through them and you say, well, wasn't that a wonderful story? And it is. But we're going to slow down and we're going to take apart some of these verses and we're going to look at some of the things that are recorded there. And I would like for you to let your mind start thinking in terms of what is going on with Nehemiah and how God is using him and how God can use you in individual situations if you will be as open as Nehemiah was when God used him. Okay. So we want to look at some lessons for leadership and learning. Now it is interesting that uh, when we look at the book of Nehemiah, we have a story here that involves loyalty, it involves action, it involves intrigue, it involves turning of events, it involves opposition, and in the end, as any good novel would end, the good guy wins. Okay? So it is a great book uh, to read. Now, this is what we're going to be looking at. Nehemiah, number one, when did he live and who was he? We're going to look at his story. We're going to look at the principles that are in that story, and then we're going to think a little bit about how we apply those principles to our lives. Okay, let's talk about when. The Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity The Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity in 586, in 539, Persia conquered Babylonia under King Cyrus. Then in 538, just a year later, Cyrus allowed the Jews to start going back to Jerusalem. In 536, he allowed them to start building a temple. The interesting thing was he issued a decree, they started building the temple, and about five years later, they were very slow in rebuilding this temple, but five years later they had to stop. 
And the temple was finally completed in 516. So there was 20 years from the time they started until the time they completed it. Then in uh, 458, Ezra, you read the book of Ezra, he came to Jerusalem and led a large group. And that was the second group of Jews that had been allowed to return. Then in 445, we have Nehemiah's story, and that is the third group of Jews who are returning to Jerusalem. Now, who was Nehemiah? Well, he was born and raised in captivity, because what I showed you in the previous chart covered 141 years. So he was born and raised in captivity. And uh, as a result of that, we would probably wonder how he was so steeped in the Jewish faith. Okay? But when, when the Jews were taken into exile, the most educated and the most productive of the Jews were put in significant positions. So his parents probably had occupied a significant position but they brought with them their Jewish heritage. Now, he was educated and was a devout Jew. We know that as we read the first four chapters. He was in a responsible government position. He was the cupbearer for the king. He had to be trusted because he was testing the food before and the drink before the king ate it. And so he was a trusted official in the uh, king's service. <clears throat> he was sensitive. <clears throat> he was sensitive to needs. When he saw things that needed to be done, he stepped up and did them. That probably came from his Jewish tradition, and it came from being in the service of a king. Who, if you displeased the king, you didn't exist anymore. Okay. Then he was also willing to act. So that's who Nehemiah is. So what I want to do now is I want to read the first chapter of Nehemiah. And um, let's just take a, just listen as we hear uh, this book. The words of Nehemiah, son of Halkali, in the month of Kislev, and that would be November or December. Okay? So, in the month of November, December, in the 20th year, <clears throat> while I was in the citadel of Susa, and Susa is the capital of Persia where the king was, one of my brothers came from Judah, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Now, some of the, the poorest of Jews were left in Jerusalem by the Babylonians, but we have now had two groups that returned from Persia, okay, to Jerusalem. So, he is questioning them about uh, Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in uh, the province are in great trouble and disgrace. 
the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In order for a city to be great during this period of time, particularly a Jewish city, it needed a place of worship and it needed walls. The walls were for protection. And as you read the Old Testament, you always hear about the walls of the city. And when a city is conquered, the conquerors typically go in, take the walls down to level, they even scatter the stones. Okay? So the walls have been uh, broken down and the, the uh, wood used for the gates have been burned. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Okay? He was upset, he mourned and fasted, and he prayed to God. And here's his prayer. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant who is praying before you day and night for your people, this people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Doesn't that sound like some of the prayers we hear today? particularly around the Lord's Supper. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then, even if you are exiled people, or at the furthest ends of the horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my house. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this servant, of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And this man is King Darius. I'm sorry, Exertes. says, give him favor in the presence of this man. Now, Nehemiah knows he's going to be in the presence of the king. He knows he has a problem he wants to present to the king. But he is in a situation where he doesn't typically bring problems to the king. Okay, he's there to taste the food and drink the wine. So he has prayed specifically for God to give him favor in the presence of the king. And then it says, I was the cupbearer to the king. So that's the first chapter. Now let's look at that. First, he was sensitive to the needs. When the exiles that came back reported to Nehemiah, the scripture says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. What are the things that cause us 
to sit down and weep when we see them happening. Okay? That'll be an individual thing. Because God didn't call this whole class to do everything. But he calls individuals to do something. Okay? So one of the things that tug at your heart when you hear about them. Tugging at the heart is one thing. Then he prayed about the needs. He looked around and he said, I can't meet all these needs. I am simply a cupbearer in the service of the king. So he prayed, and we heard his prayer. And the last word of that prayer was, give me favor in the eyes of the king. Then he was very specific in his prayer. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. When we see a need, when it tugs in our heart, and when we pray about it, we need to be specific. And that prayer is not, oh Lord, please raise up somebody that will do something about this. God uses us as individuals to do something about it. It may be some minor part, but at least you have a part in solving problems. Now, he chose his time wisely. We're going to read in chapter 2 that he recognized the problem sometime in November, December time frame. But when we start reading chapter 2, we find out that it was in April when he actually did something about it. So he had a period of time here to maybe put his plan together, think about it, pray about it, get prepared, wait for the opportune moment. Those things are all important. But he was working on this the entire time. Okay? So, Let's then go to chapter 2. We have him seeing the problem, praying about it, preparing for it. And then in chapter 2, it says in the month of Nisan, and that would have been basically April, in the 20th years of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. And there was a reason for that. The king did not like sad folks. <laughs> and if the king doesn't like sad folks, you're not going to be sad in his presence. You can do it somewhere else. Okay. So uh, I had I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Interesting that the king recognized the source of this sadness. I was very much afraid. I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So he is, he is basically now saying to the king, okay, I'm sad, 
But here is the reason. This important city in the life of my fathers is lying in ruin. The king said to me, what is it you want? How would you like to have the king say that to you? Sure opens up. Now the question is, how do you answer that? Are you timid about, well, oh king, let me think about it. Let me cogitate on it. Let me decide what it is I want. But Nehemiah says, Then I prayed to the Lord of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers uh, are buried, so that I may rebuild it. How do you like that request? Would you, oh king, would you send me your cupbearer all the way to Jerusalem to rebuild it because it's important to me? How do you like that request? <laughs> Would you be a little concerned about what the king is going to reply? Well, the king, with the queen sitting beside me, asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? Now, the interesting thing to me is Nehemiah never answers that question. It's not recorded. So we don't know. But that's one of the questions I'd like to ask Nehemiah is, why didn't you answer that? And I have a feeling is because he knew it was going to take a long time. And all he is trying to do, like any good salesman, is get the order. Right? <laughs> so... Um, then the king with the queen sitting beside me asked me how long the journey would take and when could we get back. It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Now, you got the order, right, to go. But look what Nehemiah does next. I also said to him, you know, it's like, oh, by the way, king, if it pleases the king, May I have letters from the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asa, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel of the temple. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent an army, sent army officers and cavalry with me. Okay, we have now gone in these few verses from a request. No, number, we have gone in these few verses from being sad in the presence of the king, making a request, and seeing that request approved all the way to the king sending an army to accompany him. So, we see that he asked for the opportunity to rebuild the walls, provide for a safe journey, and even provide the materials. Okay? 
go to the next one. We're going to get into uh, the, the later part of this. But while we're on this, how, how aggressive are we when we see a problem that needs to be fixed in acting on it, and once we see the approval given, to get more specific and more direct in what we're asking for. Now, we know we continue to pray, and that's important, but you have also got to identify those that have resources and not be bashful about asking for them. Because any great cause will generate the resources that are required to do that. We've got all kinds of examples. Homestretch, for example. There is a great need for homestretch homes. We have asked people to do unusual things, and they have responded. There is a great need for jobs. We have asked people to do unusual things. Right, Bob? Bob, Bob is on Catherine Simon's speed dial. Okay? But she is not bashful about asking people to do things. And as a result, people respond. So, Nehemiah has proven to us that when you have a need, when that need is important and significant to God, don't be bashful about asking for help. So, let's move on now, since we, um, we've gotten the request, we got an army troop to take us to, to uh, Jerusalem, let's look at what happens. Now, the first thing that typically happens is you're going to get opposition. Anytime you come up with something that you want to accomplish that is major, you're going to find all of the naysayers coming out of the woodwork talking about why it won't work, how difficult it's going to be, why don't we use the resources somewhere else, okay? And frequently those people have selfish interests. So starting with, with verse 10, when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite officials heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, these two guys were officials. They had also been appointed by the king, okay, because the, the Persians typically used people from the individual countries they conquered to govern. So these two people had significant government jobs that were going to be uh, in jeopardy because of what Nehemiah was doing. So Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do in Jerusalem. There were... Uh, there were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. 
So Nehemiah has arrived. He's already had opposition coming at him from another group. But he goes out at night to assess the situation. So he went out to examine the wall. He says, by night I went out through the valley gate, the jackal well, and the dumb gate. Around Jerusalem, I'm going to show you in a few minutes, were a number of gates. And they were significant in the operation of the city. But he went out that night, he rode around and assessed what the wall looked like. And it was in pitiful shape. He says, I turned, uh, turned back and re-entered uh, the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. Because as of yet, I had said nothing to them about uh, rebuilding the wall. So he has now assessed the wall. Now he's ready to reveal his plan. Now this is always the tricky part, right? Yes, there is a great need. Now here's what we can do about it. And that's when another group of naysayers come up, typically. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in in Jerusalem? The walls are in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the glorious hand of my God and what the king had said to me. So he said, let's rebuild the wall. That is his plan. Uh, again, Sanballat and Tobiah come up and start mocking him. They're saying, you can't rebuild this wall. You've got all this rubble out there. It has been burned. Those, you can never get those stones stacked up into a wall. It just is not going to happen. And it says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, these two individuals, you will have no share in Jerusalem or claim any right to it. So basically he writes them off. So he has revealed his plans. He has gotten the people to agree. They have said, yes, let's rebuild it. He has handled the opposition of these two individuals, and he has told them, if you oppose this, then basically I'm moving you to the aside, you will have nothing to do with it. So when you know who your opponents are, when you know what their objections are, and you know you're going to proceed, just push them over there and let them watch. Now, starting with chapter 3, it says, Eleshahed, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Now, the interesting thing is, there was always a priest left in Jerusalem. And there was a priestly family, the Levites, that were left there. And the first person recorded here is the priestly individual for Jerusalem. So 
So if you want influence in getting others to follow, pick the people who are leaders, convince them, and get them involved. So he enlisted his leadership for this. And then the rest of chapter 3, and I had a couple of people say to me, reading chapter 3, the rest of the story there was um, was kind of tedious because it, it, it goes through who did what, who built what part of the wall, who did so and so and so and so. That is important, though, from the recording of what is going on here. From God's standpoint, God has recorded the names of these individuals and what they did. And I believe that God records the things that we as individuals do and what we're doing to promote his kingdom. It was important enough. And as we read some of the later chapters of Nehemiah, you're going to really get bored because it deals with a lot of names. I don't ask you to read each one and look them up and know how to pronounce them. But just remember that God is recording those names in Scripture for us. So he uh, enlisted the leadership, and then, then he encouraged everybody to participate. Well, we want to do the same thing when we recognize there's a need. Find leaders, enlist them, and then open it up for everybody to participate. And that's what Nehemiah did. Now, here is a picture of the temple. As you read chapter 3, and probably in your Bible you'll also have a picture of the walls around Jerusalem, and uh, why it is important as you read about these individuals who built portions of the wall. The uh, temple area is here. And when we read the first verse of chapter 3, it said the high priest and uh, his fellow workers went to work on the sheep gate, right there. The sheep gate is where the sacrifices were brought into the temple to be sacrificed. So that was important to the priest. They wanted to get that rebuilt. Okay? Then as you read, the, the, they basically talk about building all the way around. Okay? The fish gate was the gate that was toward the Mediterranean Sea, and that was where the fish came in that were caught, were brought into Jerusalem. Then the valley gate was the entrance for the produce from the agricultural area to come into the city. The dung gate. Okay, that's the garbage gate. That's where they took the garbage out. So the, the sanitation center was down in that area, okay? Then you had the fountain gate, the springs there, and they even had a water gate before we had next okay? But these gates then were the water supply. The horse gate was the widest gate in the city in order to allow the horses to come through. So, as you read chapter 3, you see the various people who built 
those portions of the wall, and they lived along there. And the one I like best is the one that says that one particular person built the wall, and all of his daughters helped. Okay? <laughs> so, we have this. Now, we're going to get into next week some of the other things that happened after they got started. Because getting it started is one thing. Finishing it is another. So let's just look real quick at the principles. Nehemiah was sensitive to the needs. He prayed specifically. He chose his timing. He acted on the opportunities. He assessed the needs, things that had to be done. He revealed the plan to the people. He involved others. And he handled opposition. Isn't that normally what happens when you try to do something great for the Lord? I've been fortunate to have three times in my life when I had an opportunity to do something fairly significant. One was to build a church in New Jersey. And Gail and I were the finance chairmen. All we had to do was raise the money. And this was a very conservative church, and we did it in a time when interest rates were extremely high. And I had people come up to me and say, you will never, and we sold bonds, you will never sell all of those bonds. I can report to you that we sold enough bonds that every time we needed money to make a payment to the contractor, it was available. And we didn't sell the last bond until the week before the church was completed. Wasn't my problem. God knew there was enough money there, and he knew whose pocket it was in, and it came in. The second one was building the sanctuary. We had been here about three years, and I was invited to come to a meeting to find out about this new sanctuary that was proposed. The meeting lasted about three hours, and at the end of the meeting, I was the finance chairman. <laughs> and the first goal was to raise $4 million. And I had people come to me again and say, you can't do it. Well, God did it. And then the third one was the, uh, the, the die. I was not the finance chairman there, but I worked very closely with it. Larry Mashburn. And we built it on. But you go through these same kinds of things. So, my challenge to you is, let God speak to you. Be sensitive to the needs that you see. And it doesn't have to be as significant as building a wall around Jerusalem or a sanctuary. But it has to be a need that God puts on your heart. Be sensitive and then do something about it. Okay. That's the lesson from Nehemiah. So next week we're going to look at some of the follow-ons, finishing the wall, and then we're going to look at some of the spiritual aspects that take place. Because along with Nehemiah is Ezra the prophet.
And we're going to see some of the spiritual rejuvenation of the people. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that when we read it, seeking to understand the principles that you have in there, they tend to jump at us. But it is so easy to read and just look at it as a story. So help us as we think about the things we've talked about this morning, and as we attempt to apply them in our lives, that they might be real. That we would look for areas where we should be sensitive, where there's something you're calling us to do. It doesn't have to be a major significant project. It can be one that is important to you. Help us to be sensitive. Bless us now as we leave here. Direct us in all that we do, that we may honor you and glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.